in a series of podcasts presented for you by the Psychology Association of Alberta. purpose of the podcast to present information that is timely, topical, and even controversial to the membership I led in with The Roots, a song called The Movement. And the reason I led in with that is the closest thing I could find related to our topic today, which is the movement in diagnostic systems. Uh, the article that I'm referring to is called a, pri- a, a pri- primer, primer for clinicians on alternatives to the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental health of mental disorders. So the DSM, they're looking at the alternatives that are emerging and being considered. It's a bit of a dense podcast, and I'm going to go through it methodically. There'll probably be some pauses and uh, click on off as I'm trying to aggregate the data. Uh, We know that the DSM has been subject to a lot of criticism. Uh, Probably the best criticism in the last 20 years was uh, criticism by a psychologist named Kaplan. And Kaplan uh, proposed a disorder called uh, the Dominating Delusional Personality Disorder. At that time, they were looking at the overrepresentation in certain diagnostic categories of women. And uh, so she proposed uh, the uh, delusional dominating personality disorder, which was exclusively applied to men. She went through the criteria as they would exist for the diagnosis in a DSM format. The DSM people. Uh, put their noses in the air, were angry with her, and said, you're making fun of us, and, uh, making fun of us. And she said, yeah, well, exactly, I'm making fun of you. Uh, because the same criteria you use as a bunch of uh, uh, predominantly men sitting around at that time was to uh, say, well, let's name things we can call people. And it was as scientifically based uh, as was her uh, proposal. So she has a nice book out. You can find it, Kaplan, C-A-P-L-A-N, and, and it was called They Think You're Crazy. Anyway, so there's been criticism over the years that we have enjoyed regarding the DSM. This criticism has also emerged in such traditions as narrative therapy, uh, where narrative therapy would be saying uh, we abjure uh, these sorts of classificatory systems, the reductionist uh, qualities in this, and then the absence of a more resource-based way of looking at people. Um, Nonetheless, uh, the current criticism is based in alternative systems of classification. 
So I'm going to go through what the article has and kind of uh, pare it out from, from what these people have written. Uh, Phillips and Raskin are the authors. Uh, each of the alternative systems that are emerging on the horizon uh, of diagnosis. All right, so the first system that they uh, uh, explicate for our purposes in the article is the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD. Many of us, or most of us, should be familiar with this because it comes out of the World Health Organization and involves not just mental health, but an attempt to have this classificatory system for all sorts of diseases that will cut across uh, all um, cultural and social uh, uh, milieus and be useful to uh, physicians and then to mental health practitioners as well. This, uh, this system uh, is, uh, uh, is similar to the DSM and yet somewhat different. Similar uh, because they provide criteria for specific mental health disorders, but they're less rigid and it's given clinicians more latitude for their own judgment to come in. Uh, the attempts to harmonize this have been taking place since about 2014-2015 with the DSM, not yet entirely in place, uh, but uh, still uh, looking at this, uh, you know, to try to bring these two together rather than one or the other, but see how they can fit and work with each other. Um, uh, the goal of the ICD, uh, and it's ICD-11, we're talking about the 11th edition, it attempts to enhance utility without compromising the validity of diagnosis. Um, it is also aiming for cross-cultural applicability, which is something that psychology is very much akin to. Of our foundational areas of competency, cross-cultural and systemic appreciation has emerged. And, and, and by the way, uh, in these foundational competencies, we will soon see um, uh, media technology. Our technology is a foundational expectation given the use now of remote treatment, uh, training, and et cetera. Um, so cross-cultural applicability. The weakness in the ICD is there is too much clinical judgment, perhaps, and a second weakness it could be spoken of is uh, uh, the potential for medicalization that it tends to medicalize more uh, by trying to include mental health disorders in its other classificatory systems uh, related to a specific uh, physical disease. All right. A second alternative model is the hierarchical taxonomy of psychopathology and it's called HITOP. H, capital H, small i, capital T-O-P. And it's a quantitative dimensional classificatory system which seeks to organize symptoms and traits of syndromes into cohesive hierarchical spectra. So the greatest contribution it brings to us is more of a spectral um, look at mental health disorders. It doesn't like the all or nothing diagnostic categories because as has been part of the criticism with the DSM, uh, there tends to be more exclusivity in diagnosis. And then also uh, it lets more bias come in. So it says they're looking at the spectral dimensions hierarchically and they're organized in, in 
and very, very specific six-dimensional uh, 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 system, a six-dimensional system. Let me just go to those, uh, uh, those dimensions. It might make more sense, all right? High top six dimensions include internalizing spectrum, thought disorder spectrum, dishibited externalizing spectrum, antagonistic externalizing spectrum, detachment spectrum, and somatoform spectrum. Now, let me take this to some stuff that we would probably already be familiar with. When they go across their six spectra, they take each of them and, and look at the underlying sorts of diagnoses and uh, uh, conditions that each one would speak to. So somatoform deals with um, hypochondriasis and related um, uh, 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 illness, anxieties, and somatoform symptoms. When they look at internalizing, they're dealing with sexual problems, eating problems, fear, distress, and uh, mania. When they're looking at thought disorder, they're looking at mania and uh, schizoidal uh, subtype, uh, subtypes of uh, personality disorders, and then even the more formal uh, psychiatric disorders that, that relate to um, uh, schizophrenic and the, the, the classical sorts of things that diagnosis has been about. So the thought disorders fit into that, externalizing disinhibited substance abuse and antisocial behaviors. Ah, the externalizing antagonistic antisocial behaviors and the dramatic cluster of uh, <clears throat> borderline histrionic, narcissistic, and paranoid. And then the detachment relating to avoidant, dependent, uh, uh, histrionic, and schizoidal sorts of things. So you follow. They take this spectra and they say more or less related to the following sorts of more classical diagnostic categories that we're familiar with. Now, it's kind of cool because um, the strengths are, <clears throat> it's parsimonious. It doesn't divorce these guys, but lines them up and shows how they can be <coughs> adjacent to each other and how one spectrum might touch upon another one. Um, the, there is some problem relative to what they call actionable ranges and clinical measures. In other words, we've got the spectra. So is there a cutoff point for certain interventions that we might as clinicians bring to, to these cases or even, you know, the biological treatments? Um, they say there's a lot of benefit in this um, uh, for research, uh, that it looks at uh, uh, the, the measuring of these spectra relative to outcomes and classificatory systems. I don't quite understand the research basis because, I mean, this is over the fence from the work that most of us do as clinicians. So um, uh, uh, it's a, another uh, clinical diagnostic system, high tops, but the biggest thing to take away from the podcast is six spectra that they look at, internalizing spectra, thought disorder spectrum, dis disinhibited externalizing, antagonistic externalizing, detachment, and somatoform spectrum. Okay, So I think that's the value for us is looking at those uh, six, um, six classificatory uh, criteria. The next diagnostic model that they look at is one that's based more in a theoretical perspective, and it's the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual. And this is a, a 
was published as early as the near the turn of the century, 2006, and it uses psychodynamic classificatory uh, descriptions. Now, it has um, three axes, and I'll go through each of those, I think. They have a p-axis, which is personality syndromes, and it looks at personality organization, underlying dynamic processes that determine, that determine adaptation and functioning, which are on a spectrum from healthy through neurotic, borderline to psychotic. So that's the one axis that they would be considering in describing a patient function. The second one is the M-axis, and it's a profile of mental functioning. And I can go through the, they have 12, I'll go through a few of their criteria so this doesn't turn into a, a long, pedantic sort of discussion. But they look at, they rate, they have a rating scale of, of, of five through one. Capacity for regulation, attention, and learning. Capacity for differentiation and integration. Capacity for relationship and intimacy. To capacity for meaning and purpose. So you can see these would be rated for each patient relative to the other axis, which is the personality syndromes. And finally, the subjective experiences uh, that the uh, patient uh, 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 manifests or suffers, and that's called the S-axis. And it focuses on the, the, the traditional sort of ICD DSM diagnosis and it tries to, to then, then harmonize. So in other words, what are the subjective experiences? You know with DSM it'll say, must have two of the five here, must have three of the seven there, etc., and so on. So this is a similar one. And they're looking at the symptoms subjectively that the patient would describe or that you would observe as a clinician. Now this is kind of nice because it's very nuanced. It's a, somewhere between a sophisticated development of psychopathology and a diagnostic uh, manual. And it, uh, it gives us a way uh, to sort of describe our, our patients, additional color commentary that we can bring to when we're talking about the folks that we are treating. And, and it can stand alone, you know, as an independent nomenclature. Uh, uh, that's the word they use, uh, the independent nomen, nom, <laughs> nomenclature, and, uh, and, and give us some way to speak of patients. Uh, the criticism is it's a little bit too much theoretical alliance. In other words, the psychodynamic stuff. I've always said psychodynamic stuff uh, causes difficulty in the treatment range, but in the descriptive range, it's not too bad, but it's too, too much loyalty to that model. And then it can become uh, very uh, complex, right? Uh, is it too sophisticated? Say, let's say you're in court and you begin discussing this stuff. Does it come across as an occult language that we would share with each other but might not translate into uh, descriptive uh, utility in the real world? So those are some of the comments about it. And it, it comes out of uh, Britain, uh, which is um, also... Uh, uh, I, I don't want to talk about, you know, regional political differences, but the British have had a greater commitment to psychodynamic issues than maybe North Americans. Where we're always rediscovering ourselves um, as in an adolescent fashion. They tend to stay in a more mature uh, focus and commitment to their to their craft of psychoanalysis. All right, uh, I'm going to take a break and we'll get back to the next one.
um, uh, already mentioned is the concept of um, um, narrative. And in the traditions of narrative intervention and treatment, probably the most significant contribution is another classificatory system called the Power Threat Meaning Framework, so PTMF. And this is not a diagnostic system per se, but another way of conceptualizing the circumstance of the patient in a way that delivers descriptive, uh, um, I'm using all these big words, descriptive explication of the circumstances of their life. It has to do with their lived story. And it says that essentially mental distress um, is a result of trauma-informed and narrative case formulation, not the result of brain dysfunction, but really a sensible survival strategy that insulates the individual for negative operations of power and threat. So it's the best choices they could make to protect themselves, isolate themselves, insulate themselves, or provide a, a inoculation against power and threat. And the statement that they would make to a patient in terms of diagnostic formulation is this. You are experiencing a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances. Anyone else who had been through the same events might well have ended up reacting in the same way. However, these survival strategies may no longer be needed or useful with the right kind of support. You may be able to leave them behind. So... What they would do in terms of description is to ask the question, what has happened to you? Now again, it isn't in a traditional psychiatric format. As a matter of fact, they're opposed to that. They want to address the concept of power. What has happened to you? How has power operated in your life? Either its presence in an antagonistic sense or your attempts to provide that power uh, in moving forward with your personal life narrative. They say there are seven types of power that can impact people's lives. Biological or empowered power. Strength, physical appearance, embodied talents and abilities, and physical health. All of those can be uh, to your benefit or work against you. Coercive power, power by force, violence, threats, intimidation. Legal power, hospitalization, arrest, imprisonment, the way the legal system has exercised power relative to your current circumstance. Economic, wealth, education, safety, security, and privacy. A very important concept here that relates also to social justice is the concept of inherited wealth. There's lots of research that has shown inherited wealth makes a huge difference and how people live out their lives. Inherited wealth is both financial and economic, but also circumstantial. The way per a person has experienced their developmental years and their emergence as an adult. And there are systems where there's a great deal of inherited wealth. Access to libraries, access to education, quality diet can even be an inherited source of wealth. So how has that come forward? So I want to expand on this sense of economic power, social cultural capital, 
so social identities, connections, knowledge, and qualifications. I was speaking with First Nations friend, and she said one of the greatest gifts that her parents gave her was an understanding of the absence of social cultural wealth inheritance. In other words, you will not inherit a view of yourself as valued, as honored, as respected, as placed within the social cultural system that you will have to live in. And she said that was a really nice thing that they gave her. That was a form of inherited wealth so that she didn't naively walk in to the uh, issues of discrimination that Native people would face. In her personal power, to protect and care for yourself and for others and to have choice. In the capabilities movement, they say societies that will function the best are societies that provide capabilities for the, the people that live within that society. What are capabilities? Just what these are. The ability to believe I can be cared for, I can be protected. The ability to believe I can do something, I can go somewhere, I have choices. I'm able to achieve my potential. Okay? So the capabilities movement fits in really well with this model. And then the last one kind of also fits with some of the things we've said. Ideological power, meaning to control agendas, to see how issues are framed and talk about, talked about. This is why the whole um, you know, use of critical race theory in the states to, to um, animate a political base. Critical race theory is one of these issues of ideological power to be able to see through this lens and that lens, to speak about the lived experience of this group, that group, or any group that would be emerging. The, the uh, forces on the right have interpreted this as bringing shame to being white. No bringing shame to being white. To expand the privilege you have as a majority member to see the world in cooler and more expansive ways. All right, so, so the whole cl clinical approach here is how did power affect you? And, and what sense do you have of this power that's been exerted against you and the way you've lived with it? And of course you can see in this there's feminist psychology in this. There would certainly be cultural and racial considerations. And then looking at things like um, uh, not only the meaning that has been passed on to the individual, but their responses. Uh, what did you do in order to make the most of your life? So, so even in very wealthy clients, uh, let's take a man who's got a great deal of, of wealth, they'll say, how has the, the dominant narrative regarding the role of men in society um, uh, empowered you, but also disempowered you? How has it shut doors so you have survived by strive, drive, reward without fulfilling maybe other aspects of your character. And this is that issue of the story, right? What's your story? How does it fit together? And the idea is to restore to them a broader narrative so that they're able to, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, if that wealthy man comes in with anxiety or problems in relationship, problems in day-to-day in, uh, -day function relative to alcohol, how has alcohol use been a response to um, institutions of power that have limited your ability or, or increased the likelihood of alcohol being something that would serve you. Um, and and uh, it's, a, it's a, a, you know, it's attempt to be a broad theoretical framework and a practical alternative to reductionist diagnosis. It doesn't seek to replace DSM at all. 
or even to really complement DSM. It's just saying this is a whole other way to see it. And it emphasizes really the social underpinnings of distress. And this goes back to the 60s. Uh, radical therapy was something that came out of the 60s uh, where therapy would be entirely situated in a social political discourse, not in the inherent, um, uh, we always say, uh, failures, limitations, etc., that the patient might feel they're carrying. As a matter of fact, the self-blame would be entirely attributed to exercises of power outside the domain of the organism. Oh my God, did you guys stick with this? I mean, I could barely stick with it uh, uh, doing it, but it was really fun to read this article. It was in Professional Psychology Research and Practice, and their articulation of these alternative systems. And if not to be a replacement for the DSM, for it to be complementary in our ways of speaking about our, our patients and the people that we um, are engendered, in, in uh, are, are entrusted to care for. Um, thanks so much. Let's get out of this. And, uh, um, you know, I guess I, once, once you get talking this much about something, you just start rolling, rolling, and think, oh, maybe I can tell them your story. Maybe there's something else, but I'll quit. Took us in. Let's have the roots uh, march us out.